Could you turn with me now back to that passage that we read in Ephesians chapter 3, and particularly words in verse 18. That we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ. And especially these words... What is the breadth and length and height and depth? Philosophers and gurus may wax eloquent about it. Books and films may extol its virtues. Poets and songwriters sing its praises. Love lifts us up where we belong, where the eagles cry on a mountain high. Love lifts us up where we belong. Far from the world we know, up where the clear winds blow. The Bible, too, of course, commends love. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, we read, Love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. And of course, in the New Testament, we have that famous verse in 1 Corinthians 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. But as the song says, the experience of many is that love hurts. Love hurts. Love scars, love wounds and mars. Some fools rave of happiness, blissfulness, togetherness. Some fools fool themselves, I guess. But they're not fooling me. I know it isn't true. Love is just a lie made to make you blue. And how many people have been let down by love, disappointed in love? Let down by husbands or wives, lovers or friends? And so we can become cynical. They say it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved. But they don't have to count the cost and learn to be unloved. But that can make us also long for a better love, a higher love, a wider love, a deeper love. But is there someone somewhere else who loves without reserve? accepts me as I am and gives the love I don't deserve. The message of the gospel is that there is such a love. It is Christ's love. A love that's wider, longer, higher and deeper than any merely human love. I'd like us this morning to consider for a little while the dimensions of Christ's love. First of all, the width or the breadth of Christ's love. It's wide in this sense first. It comes to all branches of the human race. In verse 6 we're told, This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Jews and Gentiles together. Now what does the word Gentiles mean? 
I often think it's a pity that the most versions of the Bible translate it as Gentiles. It actually literally means the nations. It's talking about all the nations of the earth. The Jewish nation was one nation, but the nations include everyone on the face of the earth, all the peoples of this world. And this was the radical message of the gospel as proclaimed by Paul and the other apostles in those early days. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for the whole world, not limited to any one race or any one group of people. Now we know that historically God had narrowed down his revelation to one nation, to Israel, but it was in order to reach the nations because he promised right at the beginning in choosing Abraham and making a covenant with him that it would be through him that all nations on earth would be blessed. Through his seed, his descendant, all nations on earth would be blessed. But the Jewish people at this time had forgotten that. They despised the nations. They hated the other nations. They interpreted the law to say, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And your neighbor was your Jewish neighbor, and your enemy was the other nations. And this is the problem with human love. It tends to be so exclusive. I can love a person of this nation, or this color, or this culture, but not of that. The basis of all kinds of racial hatred and prejudice. Jesus showed none of that. Even although his ministry was the last great concentrated witness to the people of Israel, he helped Samaritans, Romans, Greeks, and whoever he came in contact with. There was no prejudice on Jesus' part. And he commissioned his disciples to go and to make disciples of all nations. And so the gospel spread out from Jerusalem, first to the Samaritans, then to people of other nations. And they came to believe in the Lord Jesus. So it doesn't matter what nationality or culture or color you are. Christ's love reaches out to you. It is wide. It is broad in that sense. He died for the world. And he wants you to know that great love. But also it's wide or broad in this sense. Christ's love comes to all kinds of people. To people with all kinds of sins. Charlie Brown in the Peanuts cartoon said, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. And you know, we can identify with that. We may think, oh yeah, I love everybody. But then when we come up against certain people, no, I can't love that kind of person. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this, and at first you might think this is going in a totally different direction from what we're saying here. This is what he says. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You might think, where are we going with this? This is excluding. This is excluding people. But his, listen to what he says. And that is what some of you wear. Those people in Corinth, that's what they wear. All those different kinds of sinners, that's what they wear. But you were washed, he says. You were sanctified. 
you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is what some of you were. So Christ's love came to those people just as they were, whatever kind of offenders they were, whatever kind of identity they thought they had, Christ's love came to them. So it doesn't matter what you think your identity is or even your sexuality is. You're not excluded from Christ's love because of that. His love will certainly cause radical changes in how you may view yourself and your identity. Because his love is a transforming love. But he loves you nonetheless. He has died for people of all sorts of identities and with all kinds of sin. But also Christ's love is wide and broad in this sense. It comes to all kinds of personalities. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. He was talking there about there were other apostles and they had gifts, various gifts and so on. And he said that he was the least of the apostles. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So God's love came to different personalities, to the the extrovert and impulsive Peter and also the more introvert and thoughtful John. It came also to the highly intellectual Paul, but also to Barnabas, who was more a people person. The love of Christ came to the sensitive Mary and to the more practical Martha, her sister. The love of Christ came to the highly religious and respectable Nicodemus, but it also came to the disreputable and feisty Samaritan woman. Christ's love is broad and it comes to all sorts of people, all kinds of personalities. Jesus loved them all and his love was wide enough to embrace them all. And his love is wide enough to embrace you, whatever your personality is, however you may be regarded by other people, and whatever your faults may be. His love can extend to you because his love is wide, his love is broad. Secondly, we think about the second dimension of Christ's love, the length of Christ's love. His love is long. And it's long in this sense, first. It is from all eternity. In the first chapter of this letter, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read, For he chose us in him, that is, God chose us in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. And sometimes as we read those kind of things, we get a wee bit scary as we hear these words like predestination and so on. But this is absolutely staggering. Because if you are a Christian today, it's not simply because of some decision you made at some time that you became a Christian. It's not even just because God loves you now. It's not even just because Christ died for you. Every one of these things is crucial and important. But that's not the heart of it. That's not the start of it. It is because he loved you from all eternity. A powerful, effective, non-negotiable, 
eternal love. That's the astonishing length of the love of Christ. You know, there are different kinds of human love. We talk about a whirlwind romance, for instance, where people fall instantly in love. But a different kind of love is where perhaps someone has loved you from a distance for a long time, waited many years perhaps, through all your mistakes and broken romances, waited for the right time to declare their love for you. Jesus has waited a long time for us. For every one of us who's become a Christian, he waited a long time. And there are people here perhaps today that he's waited a long time that they would come and profess faith in him. His love is long and patient. Will you not respond now to his love if you've never done so before? Christ's love is also long in this sense that it is for life. There's a word in the Old Testament that is often translated in different ways because it's a different, difficult word to get an exact word-for-word -word translation for it. Sometimes called covenant love because it's very much attached to God's covenant love for his people. Sometimes it's steadfast love or constant love or faithful love. Because you see, human love tends to be fickle. Carol King had a song called Will You Love Me Tomorrow? I'd like to know that your love is love I can be sure of. So tell me now and I won't ask you again. Will you still love me tomorrow? You never need to ask Jesus that. He said he is always with us to the end of the age. He said he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He said that he is the same yesterday, today and forever. The playwright Somerset Maugham said, We are not the same persons this year as last, nor are those we love. It is a happy chance if we, changing, continue to love a changed person. The great reality of Christ's love is that he loves us through all the changes. We may change in life, and life changes us, but he never changes in his constant faithful love for us. George Matheson was someone who had all his life before him. He was training for the ministry. He was engaged to be married. But he started to go blind. His engagement was broken off. And some years later, on the occasion of his sister's wedding, he wrote the famous hymn, O love that will not let me go. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, and in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. The love that will not let us go, that's how long Christ's love is. We may wander, we may fail, but no one is able to pluck us out of his hand. His love is long. It's long also in this sense. It is to all eternity. Again, to quote the playwright Somerset Maugham, he said, The love that lasts longest is the love that is never returned. In other words, he's talking about unrequited love, as it's called. You love someone, but they never love you back, but you go on and on loving them. But you know he's wrong. 
That's not the longest love. The love that lasts longest is Christ's eternal love. John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. Everlasting life. Christ's love extends beyond this, beyond the grave itself. John chapter 14, the famous words, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. His love is long because it stretches out into all eternity. He has a place prepared for each one of his people. A place specially for them in the service that he wants us to perform for him in that new world, that new heavens and new earth. So this love is not till death us to part. It is forever. Charles Spurgeon said, when the time comes for you to die, you need not be afraid. Because death cannot separate you from God's love. So Christ's love not only is wide, but it's also long. But now we come to think of the third dimension of Christ's love. The height of Christ's love. It is high. And it's high in this sense. It comes to us from heaven. From the very heart of God. There is no higher place from which that love could come. Now, it's great to be loved by family and friends, by people like yourself. But what if you were loved by someone famous? A prince or princess, a pop star or film star, a famous writer or a sports person, someone like that, some celebrity that everybody would look up to. What about that? Well, apart from anything else, it would do your self-esteem no end of good, wouldn't it? To be loved by someone so high. But that's as nothing compared to being loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Prince of Glory, the only begotten Son of God, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And yet He loves me. And if you know Him, He loves you. Amazing. His love is so high. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. As the old hymn says, There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Only Jesus could do it. And he left the riches of heaven. He had all the riches of being the eternal son of God. Of being the one upholding the whole universe. And yet he became poor for our sakes. Only the highest and noblest, most glorious person could do it. And he did it because he loved us. So Christ's love is high. But it's also high in this sense. It can reach us. At our highest, at our high points in life. Maybe if we're high in status. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 
Paul says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Now his main point in saying that is that most people were people who were poor. They were slaves. They were people who were disregarded and despised by others. But notice he's saying that some were noble. Some were very wise and all the rest of it. Some were high in life. And yet they too came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 24. We're told that the nations will walk by its light. That is the light of the city of God. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. There may not be many high ones there. But there will be some. So if we're high up, or we've got high status in life, if we're a high hedion or whatever we are, you're not excluded from Christ's love. He loves you in spite of all of that. And he has something for you to do in his service. It's not only those who are poor and despised that Christ's love comes to. It comes to everyone, even those who are high. And it can come to us also in the high points of our life, perhaps Sometimes we think that Jesus only reaches us when we're at our lowest. And maybe that's when we think most about him and when we turn to him most. But he can reach us at even the highest points in our life. When everything seems to be going well for us. And maybe we feel we don't need his love. Think of Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul who wrote these amazing epistles. Everything was going well for him in life. He had great status. He was a Pharisee. He was someone who was highly respected. He was pursuing what he viewed as this blasphemy of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything seemed to be going well. He was riding into Damascus there to carry on this great work. And suddenly, at this high point in his life, the Lord Jesus met him and cast him down to the ground. And he had to come to recognize the Lord Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world. So Jesus' love can reach us at our times of high emotion, high achievement, or even high self-importance. But mostly, of course, Christ's love is high in this sense that it lifts us up. Because mostly we need to be lifted up, don't we? In Psalm 113, we're told, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes with the princes of their people. Who did Jesus choose as his apostles, for instance? Fishermen, a despised tax collector, and someone who was either a freedom fight fighter or an ex-terrorist, depending on how you interpret what Simon the Zealot was. These are the people that Jesus chose as his disciples, not the high ones in that society. But he lifted them up to a place of eternal honor, Jesus, in his love, wants us to be where he is. And where is he? He is seated at the right hand of God in the place of honor and power. And Jesus wants us to be there with him. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, we're told, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Christ's love is high, and it wants to make us high. It wants to exalt us. And as we were thinking about last night, it is those who humble themselves who will be exalted. 
Fourthly and finally, there's the fourth dimension of Christ's love, the depth of Christ's love. And we think here first about the depths to which he went in his love for us. Christ spoke of himself as the bread that came down from heaven in John chapter 6. And in that passage we've already quoted in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He came down, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He came down to a manger, being born as a helpless baby, laid in the box that the animals ate their hay from. He came down to being a refugee before he was two years old, a refugee to Egypt. He came down to being a working man, a carpenter, a joiner. He came down in his public ministry having nowhere to lay his head. He came down in all these ways. He came down in taking the very nature of a servant, taking the likeness of sinful flesh, as Paul puts it, a very exact theological expression. He didn't take sinful flesh. He wasn't a sinner himself. But he was so like us that people found it hard to distinguish so that people easily looked upon him as someone who was an imposter or something rather than who he really was. He came down to be mocked and to be opposed and to be misunderstood and misinterpreted. He came down by making himself vulnerable to hostility and hatred, to temptation and suffering. He came down by taking upon himself the sins of the world and enduring what those sins, your sins and mine, deserved. None of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through, ere he found his sheep that was lost. And ultimately Jesus on the cross went down to the pit of hell for he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where is the place of utter abandonment? That is the place of hell, of separation from God. And Jesus endured what our sins deserved and that is hell. That's how low he went down for us in his love for us. That's how deep his love is. And also his love is deep in this sense. It reaches us at the lowest. Someone said to me once that I'd known them at their worst and at their best. And that's quite something. But Jesus certainly has seen us at our worst. His love comes down to us in the depths in which we may be. The depths of sorrow. The depths of despair. Or the depths of depravity. Jesus' love comes down to all sorts of people in all sorts of fearful situations. Dylan wrote a song called The Chimes of Freedom. He wrote it, I think, on the occasion where he was caught in a thunderstorm. There was thunder and lightning, and they ducked into the shelter of a building. I think it might have been a church, and the bells were tolling. And he speaks about tolling for the aching ones whose wounds cannot be nursed. For the countless confused, accused, misused, strung out ones and worse. 
and for every hung-up person in the whole wide universe, and we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing. Chimes not only of freedom, but chimes of Christ's love to all the needy and desperate people in the world. Because Christ's love reached in his own earthly ministry, it reached a Samaritan woman who was married five times and was now living with another man who was totally dissatisfied with life. His love came to a widow in the depths of despair because now not only was she a widow having lost her husband, she also now had lost her only son. Christ's love came to her and he raised her, her son to life. His love came to a synagogue ruler whose little 12-year-old daughter had died and Christ restored her to life. Christ's love came to a prostitute who came and washed his feet with her tears of repentance. His love came to Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who remembering it all said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst or the chief of sinners. And he describes himself in that same chapter as a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent man. Now he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Miserables, which of course has famously been made into a musical and a film and so on, he said in that book, the greatest happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved, loved for ourselves or rather loved in spite of ourselves. And that's the depth of Christ's love. As David says in Psalm 130, Lord, from the depths to you I cry. And there is no depth to which Christ's love cannot go to reach us. No matter how lost we may be or how lost we may feel, Christ's love comes down to the very depths for us. So in conclusion, Mother Teresa said, the hunger for love is much more difficult to satisfy than the hunger for bread. But there is a love that can satisfy that hunger, that thirst for love. It is Christ's love, the dimensions of which are infinite. <clears throat> Neil Young in a song said, only love can break your heart. And for many people that sums up the failure of love. But it can also sum up the effect of the greatest love. Oscar Wilde, who was a great sinner, came to realize something of this grace of God. He said in the ballad of Reading Jail, How else but through a broken heart may Lord Christ enter in? And that's the great love of Christ. Do you know a brokenness of heart because of his great love to you, because of these amazing dimensions of his love that are infinite? Do you know what it is to realize that you don't deserve that love? But he came and loved you nonetheless, and he wants to exalt you to glory. That's the love that we celebrate today. That's the love that we remember as we remember the Lord's death and the Lord's supper. That's the love that can transform you and empower you and give you eternal life. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bring home to each one of us the significance of this great love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we have tried to 
look into the dimensions of that love and yet we know that it is beyond us because it is infinite. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself is infinite, the eternal Son of God. And yet we thank you for what you've revealed in your word and we pray that you would enable us to continue to meditate on these things. And as we remember the Lord's death and the Lord's supper, may Jesus be foremost in our minds and his great love to us. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. We'll read now a passage in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that we usually call the warrant for celebrating the Lord's Supper. And we'll read there verses from verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now I want just to say a few words about who the Lord's Supper is for. And to answer that question, we've got to really answer another question, and that is, what is the Lord's Supper? Now the Lord's Supper, in one sense, in a very simple sense, is bread and wine. There's bread and wine there on the table. And it's ordinary bread and wine. And so it speaks to us of the ordinary food and drink that people ate at that time. And still, it represents that to us. It speaks of something that satisfies our hunger, does us good, and gives us life. But of course there's something much more to it than that. It wouldn't be the Lord's Supper if we just had bread and wine on the table. It also needs these words of explanation from Jesus when he said, This is my body which is for you, and this cup of the New Testament is in my blood shed for many. So there's an interpretation of the meaning of this. But what does it mean? Because you see, there are some who would interpret those words in what we might call a crassly literalistic way. So that when Jesus says, this is my body, they interpret that to mean he's saying that that bread is actually changed into his body. Which apart from anything else, would be very difficult for the disciples to understand because there they were viewing Christ's body, his real body, and he was holding bread. And it's forgetting the way in which Jesus spoke. Jesus delighted to speak in figurative language. And we usually understand that all right. When he said, I am the door for the sheep, or I am the gate for the sheep, we're not supposed to understand that he meant that he was several planks of wood nailed together, are we? No. He's speaking figuratively. He is the way for the sheep. He is the way in for the sheep. And in the same way here, he is speaking figuratively. 
He is using the bread and wine as a symbol of something. But what is it a symbol of? Well, it is bread that is broken and it's wine that is poured out. And he says it represents the blood of his covenant. The bread and the wine symbolizes his death. It is his blood poured out. It's his body broken. And even the very fact that the body and blood are represented separately speaks of death. So whatever else the Lord's Supper is, it's directing our attention to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as ordinary food and drink satisfies our hunger, does us good, and gives us life, so Christ's death satisfies our spiritual hunger, does us spiritual good, and gives us spiritual life. But you know, it wouldn't be the Lord's Supper if we just had bread and wine on the table here and I read those words of Jesus giving us his interpretation of what it means. It's only the Lord's Supper when the Lord's people take the bread and eat it and take the wine and drink it. Now what does that symbolize? What does that mean? It means this at a very simple level. Just as each day when you take your food and drink, you are basically making a statement. You're saying, I depend upon this. I depend upon this to satisfy my hunger, to do me good and to give me life. In the same way, when you're taking this bread and wine, you're saying, the death of Jesus Christ satisfies my spiritual hunger. It does me good and it gives me eternal life. Everyone who takes bread and wine is making that statement. And so the question just remains, can you make that statement? Is that what you believe in your heart of hearts? That you depend utterly upon the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, for your eternal life? Because everybody who comes and takes the Lord's Supper is doing exactly that. That's who it's for. And if you can't make that statement, if you don't know what that means, then it's not for you. But if you believe in your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for sinners and you're a sinner, then take the bread and the wine and make that statement unashamedly that you love the Lord Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. Now we read that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, when he took bread, he gave thanks. So let us seek to follow his example and give thanks. <coughs> We are amazed that Jesus, on that night, all nights, facing what he knew he had to face, knowing what the bread and wine represented, he gave thanks. He gave thanks that his body would be broken. He gave thanks that his blood would be shed. Because he knew this was the only way in which we could be saved. And he gave thanks that he was being strengthened for that awful hour. O Lord our God, seek us also, enable us also to follow his example. To give thanks for this bread and wine and what it represents. We give you thanks for our daily bread. 
but we give you thanks especially for bread and wine that's set apart for this use to represent the death of the Lord Jesus, to enable us to make this great statement, this profession of our faith, enable us to benefit from what he has done, for he told us not only to believe the word that is proclaimed to us, but to remember his death in this way. And may this be a great blessing to us, to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our love, to strengthen our hope. And so we give thanks to you, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We read in Isaiah chapter 53, one of the passages in the Old Testament that gives us a real insight to the death of Christ. We read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was the man of sorrows because he carried our sorrows. He was despised and rejected because he was being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. As you remember Jesus today, as you take the bread and wine, remember that it's your sins that were laid on him and it's the punishment that was on him that has brought you peace. Peace. 